Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13 based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source, just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. It's not Bollywood, Pete. It's not Bollywood. (laughs) It is Tollywood. And I am so doing it. (laughs) Why did that happen? Why? Why did that happen? Have you seen the trailer? I have seen the trailer. No, I mean, really, have you watched it? I have watched it. I'm not sure that you have. (laughs) You should watch it again, because I'm not sure that you've seen it. I think I think maybe you just kind of is some sort of trailer roulette. Ega, <laughs> ega. Oh. It's the next reel, everybody. And uh, I'm Pete, and that's Andy. <laughs> Sorry, I'm playing a trailer. Oh, you are. Have you seen the uh, one that I'm doing? Uh, I have. I have. Yours is much much darker and <laughs> more serious. I know it's very dark <laughs> and very serious. Uh, it comes out late uh, December. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. You should go to thenextreel.com, everybody, and you should uh, also subscribe to this podcast if you're listening to this on Facebook or on the website. Uh, make sure you subscribe in iTunes or Downcast or whatever your uh, your uh, podcast, uh, podcatcher of choice may be. And uh, you can find us on facebook.com slash thenextreel, and uh, you can also find us at flickchart.com slash thenextreel, where you can catch up with our list of favorite films. Did I miss anything? Can they still catch us uh, over at Letterboxd? I know we're not really yeah, I'm not doing it or using it. But <laughs> you know, I, I I haven't finished. I just haven't finished the thing. I got through like 20 movies. Getting I I put all of our uh, the diary of all the movies that we've done uh, was the idea was right, that I would right. put our diary of all of our movies over there. I don't know what we we're going to use it for, but we're trying to figure. <laughs> figure out some way God, this is hard and so it just keeps coming back to the website i mean i don't know yeah. there's all these great tools but really we we have a website right and, and i don't know that we're using it uh full to its full uh you know effect spend yeah. so much time on that who's running that facebook page over there is all I pun you. it's punorific <laughs> this sure week it was <laughs> pretty punny uh, have you seen anything good this week you know I um I have been using Letterbox, so I it's a great way to keep up oh, with what I. So what, what I you're telling me is that I'm not paying enough attention to you. <laughs> so you can see everything that I've been watching. What are you? But where? What are I, you? Well, you know, I'm still plowing through my Tom Cruise. I, I think my wife creek. has given up on it, and I think it's turned into just my Tom Cruise uh, <laughs> thing, which may sound a little weird, but. <laughs> But I'm doing it. I just finished The Color of Money this week, which, uh, of course, I had look to watch at, The Hustler in oh order to watch The man, Color of Money. So look I, at you. you got all like 134 films over here. I tell you, I know. And look then I watched I, I watched my first Bruce Lee movie this week, too. So Well, uh, Tom Cruise was not in that. He was not in that. This was he The was Big not. Boss, 1971. Yeah, a.k.a. Fists of Fury. 
Uh, yeah, it's been it's been a fun week of movies. And then I watched The Gray, which is just I I really can't get enough of how great that film is. I haven't seen it. How's you that? You need to. Right. Are you... I, I think we need to do an Alaska series just so we could talk about that and uh, The Edge and oh, yeah, in, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Into the Wild. You know. All right. Yeah. That's good. I'm good with that. Are you a Letterboxd Pro member? Do you know about that? I'm not. I'm what does not. that get you? What does that get you? Does somebody come like give you a massage while you're using it? Or They do, actually. That's yeah. the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How does you know? Yeah, it's very clean. Uh, it it uh, filters. Uh, it integrates with your Netflix. It can import from your IMDb if you have your own list there already. You can do your own personalized year in review. Oh, that's like cool. That. It's only nineteen bucks a year. Yeah. Or you could be a patron where you're just throwing money at them. That's right. Or fifty bucks a year. Right, because because all you get extra is, is love, your undying gratitude. <laughs> 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 All right. So, uh, what else do we need to talk about uh, before we do? We've got. Do we have announcements? We have an announcement for this weekend, right? This weekend, we're doing our film board. Um, we're doing it on Sunday instead of Saturday, but we are going to be talking about the Wolverine, not just Wolverine. No. We're talking about the Wolverine. That's not, right. Not a Wolverine. It no. Is the Wolverine. Well, there is. There can be only one. There apparently is only this. one. Well, he lives um, forever. So. um and uh let's see what else did we have you know what we did uh we're we're in the middle of our couples on the run uh, series right Mm -hmm. and this uh you know we did last week we did true romance do you remember that i do remember that oh i know yeah oh that was a great movie it well, I just wanted to give a shout out. I feel like we didn't uh, appropriately give a shout out because I I think the seed <laughs> was planted I think uh, so. by the by the uh, fantastic Joel Micah Harris on uh, Facebook that we should do yep. true romance and that's what I, I actually got us thinking about what where could we jam that series and uh, and that's what got us started on this couples on the run thing. So Joel, you're right to uh, knock us on the head and and remind us that that it was your idea. This was your idea. So thank you so much for for. Um, uh, sharing that and get this because I'd forgotten just how great that movie was. So I'm yeah. really stoked that that movie came around. And then I, I did enjoy the uh, the little poke at you for not commenting on True Romance's uh, use of the F word when <laughs> you when you talked about it at length in Midnight Run, where True Romance actually uses it more frequently. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I is that. Uh, is that because I think it's a De Niro it's, thing? It, it may be a De Niro of... thing. It may. <laughs> it may be because the movie was uh, was uh, the movie was already failing me on some count that I I had to you know it's just not it wasn't maybe it's in the delivery it's all in the delivery, it's all in the delivery. Uh, that's the that's the thing. Did you? Oh man, did you see the clip of George Zimmerman's attorney telling a knock knock joke in court? I did not. <gasps> Talk about a joke gone flat. This, this is is De Niro. Uh, <laughs> this is a, a full. The attorney pulls a full on De Niro in court. He well, says, "You know, not even first, a coster." <laughs> no, no, no. He says, "He says, uh, well, I'd like to first of all uh, disclaim my uh, client. I'm going to tell a joke, and I, if if you don't like it or you find it inappropriate, uh, it's not my client's fault. Please blame me." He's telling this to the court. <laughs> 
and uh, and then he says, "All right." And so here's uh, here's the joke. Knock knock. Who's there? George Zimmerman. George Zimmerman. Who? Okay, you're on the jury. <laughs> right, and there's nothing. There's the vacuum of space, cold, dark space, in wow. the courtroom. And then he says, neck outstretched, nothing? I thought that was great. I'm sure it was the delivery, because really, that was funny. Oh, man. He says this in court. Can you believe it? (gasps) Oh, man. Full De Niro on that. Wow. Speaking of, I got to, let me tell you another, uh, that was a little sidetrack there, but let me tell you another another message to me, uh, the the great uh, Sarmento. Uh, I don't know why he felt he was he needed to turn the turn the shiv. Mm-hmm. Uh, he reminded me that De Niro was also in Rocky and Bullwinkle. Oh wow, he was turning the shiv, wasn't mm-hmm. he? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's out there now. <laughs> 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 Thanks a lot, Steve. You're helping my I'm case. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna do I'm gonna do my trailer first. Yeah, listen to this. Listen to this cast. Uh, first of all, we'll see. I've already lost my page. Hang on, don't don't leave. Uh, Christian Bale, Zoe Saldana, Woody Harrelson, Casey Affleck, Forrest Whitaker, Willem Dafoe, Sam Shepard. Right, all of whom <laughs> have Academy Award winner or Academy Award nominee in front of their name, <laughs> except poor Zoe. Poor Zoe Saldana. Yeah. Well, Sometimes but, I think it's more of a slap in the face when they start putting those on. I know. And then right? there's that one person. You're like, oh, and then there's and also you. Zoe's in it. <laughs> Zoe came to some readings, <laughs> and she's just so cute. <laughs> and the, the ever adorable Zoe Saldana. <laughs> this is uh, directed by Scott Cooper, who also did uh, what was it, Crazy Heart, which I mm. wasn't crazy about, but many people were which makes me more uh, excited to see this movie, Out of the Furnace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Ty, this is, uh, this is a regular thug's parade. I'm very excited about this. It's like a, it's like a steel mill fight club. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it does look that way, doesn't it? Uh, Woody Harrelson plays, the, uh, plays the, the big bad in this movie, big crazy. And uh, ironically, Christian Bale uh, uh, is also crazy. Actually, there's nothing ironic about that. Um, but it looks, uh, looks. Re- I think it looks great. Um, and I'm very excited to see it. Uh, looks like a good one to check out. But the movie doesn't come out, unfortunately, until December 6th, 2013. So uh, hang tight on that. But check out the trailer because it looks like, uh, looks like a really good one. It does. It looks, it looks interesting. It looks like it's going to be one of those films that people will be talking about at the end of the year. Yeah. And uh, uh, maybe... Zoe might get an. Uh, this could an be her shot. This could be it. <laughs> you never know. But no, I mean, I I do love Zoe. And all kidding aside, I think it does look like a uh, an interesting film. And I love Woody Harrelson. I love how much he changes in films from being such a, a an affable goofball or a, just a, a great guy or whatever, and then just turning it into Ugh. just like this horrible evil guy that he is here. That so is the I, truth. Uh, yeah, he's he's always fun to watch. That is the truth. Uh, he is he's you know, man, weird watching that guy coming from, you know. You go, uh, I'll tell you what. You go watch some old Cheers clips, and then watch this trailer. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's true. That's it. Yep. Crazy. Uh, okay, so now, 
No, I'm. I don't make. I. I'm not making. I don't. I'm. Don't mean to make fun. It's just this is. This may be, the most out there trailer. Uh, well, certainly the most out there trailer that you've done, that you have delivered unto us. It possibly is. It. It, it likely is. It's, yes. The the film is called, Ega. It is a not a Bollywood film. It is a Tollywood film. I didn't know there was such a thing, but it is a Tollywood film. What? Um, and it, let me, well, I don't know me, why, no, wait, what yeah, define okay, ta- Tollywood, it's a different area of India, um, known uh, in an area, Telugu is the area, I guess, or it's the language that they speak in this area. What would the equivalent be like, uh, movies made in like New Jersey? It's, or? I don't know, <laughs> LA, New York. They actually, you know, you joke about that. I know I shouldn't. (laughs) I'm going to get in so much trouble. (laughs) That's right. They, uh, I got to find the statistics because it's insane. Um, In the years, let's see, 2005, 6, and 8, the Telugu film industry has produced the largest number of films in India, exceeding the number of films produced (gasps) in Bollywood. The industry holds the Guinness World Record for the largest film production facility in the world. The Prasad IMAX, located in Hyderabad, is the world's largest 3D IMAX screen and the most attended cinema screen in the world. So you mock them as much (laughs) as you want, but they have it on you as far as the amount of film that they see and and, uh, make there. Oh, uh, they do. Yeah, the Guinness, uh, all of these Guinness records, like the, this movie producer, D. Rama Naidu, holds the Guinness World Record as the most prolific producer with 130 films. A Telugu actor, Brahmana Dam, holds the Guinness World Record for acting in the most number of films. Over a thousand films this guy has been in. And the list goes on and on. It's, it's really fascinating. And this is really why I wanted to do this trailer, because... I had no idea that Tollywood existed. I had no idea about Telugu cinema and all that. I just happened to catch this trailer because somebody posted it. And it's absurd in the most just crazy way that it makes me want to watch it. Basically, this guy who's a high-profile industrialist gets whatever he wants. He's got the hots for this woman. You've got these great kind of Bollywood romantic musical-looking scenes. And then, you know, he... Lots Lots of pyrotechnics. Yeah, Which lots cool. of fireworks going off and everything. <laughs> and then there's this other guy who loves this girl. And w- I, I can't tell which one kills the other, but one of them kills the other. Well, that guy is The dead guy. <laughs> he is born again as Iga, which I guess means fly in, in uh, Tanugu. And he goes about taking vengeance on, on this. By being annoying. By being a just a pest. <laughs> And, and it's really horrific. The word. Yeah, it, it really is. This fly like holds a needle and jabs it into somebody's eye. and He, he bugs you know. the, well, he's getting a shave. He bugs the barber who's getting a shave, who's shaving him and he slices his neck with the straight <laughs> razor. Uh, it's horrible. It is, but in the best, most comical, physical way. <laughs> it looks just, it looks like the first half of the trailer just looks like, it looks kind of goofy, like a, yeah. a goofy kind of uh, you know if you if you like the sort of feel good kind of uh, bollywood thing you're going to love this right you just yeah. generally love it and then it goes yeah then it nightmare <laughs> wow yes, when you see him does. hatch out of the larvae into into a fly yeah. it's 
I know. Just bad. So we're going to make sure that goes everywhere. <laughs> I can't wait for you to see it and report back. I can't wait. You know, I've got to say, as absurd as the film looks, I think I would have more fun watching this and laughing at its absurdity and enjoying it than I would going to see The Lone Ranger. Oh, yeah. that's. I think that kind of goes without saying. I mean, yeah. some of the reviews of The Lone Ranger are really entertaining. Vastly more well, entertaining, I gather, are... than the movie. Yeah. Like you that. haven't I, seen it, right? You haven't I haven't seen, seen it. it. It's one of those that I just am not really inclined to go watch. Yeah. It's one of those that if I were staying at a hotel and I was awake at 1 a.m. and it was on, I probably would lay there and watch it and keep curse at myself saying, why don't you just go to sleep, you idiot, and yeah. not be able to and yeah. end up watching That'd the whole thing. That would be sad, yeah. Oh, goodness. Okay, well, I, you know, I'll tell you, I have not uh, seen much, but I've read uh, four more Jack Reacher books since we last talked. Wow, busy I've busy. I've become obsessed. Well, I've been I've been on a uh, on a project. I've been in just crazed, wrapped up in Final Cut for a long time, and and uh, so I haven't been out of my little studio. But at night, oh man, I've been powering through the Reacher. And I'm telling you now, after I've seen that Reacher movie and read all these Reacher books, I want more Reacher. I want hmm. more Reacher. I'm well, a, that's it. Who'd have thunk it? Yeah, I want you to make that happen. Yeah, uh, I don't know how I will make it happen, but we're. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just that'll give you something new to think about. Uh, we are doing. Uh, shall we? Do we have anything else? Any other old business? I'm excited about uh, talking about this movie tonight. So, yeah. Well, let's start. Say one, two, three, go. Okay, one, two, three. <laughs> we are we are continuing our couples on the run uh, uh, series with uh, the hit film Butch and Sundance: The Early Days with Tom Berenger and William <laughs> William Cat. I kid. Oh wow! I kid. <laughs> uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. George Roy Hill. Nineteen sixty nine. Good year for westerns. Sure was. Sure was. We. Uh, I. I think it's safe to say we generally we like this movie. I think it's definitely safe to say that. Yes. This was a uh, it was kind of a popular flick. Uh, yeah, it it was. People think highly of it. They do. Um, it, it was uh, Robert Redford and um, uh, Paul Newman and Catherine Ross playing the uh, the uh, well, not Catherine Ross, but the titular characters, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, uh, uh, loosely based on uh, the true story of these guys. Yeah. You know, I hadn't really uh, made much sense of the fact that this was that this was as close to reality as they could get it. Uh, uh, as, know, as, as close as to reality story. as they could as they could discern the facts yeah. back in '68, '69, yeah, yeah. when William Goldman's writing it and everything. Yeah. Right. Uh, in in general, you know, these these Paul Newman and. and um, uh, Robert Redford are, are so really unforgettable in these characters that they've they've kind of become those characters. It's tough to see them as anything else. Um, uh, even even the Sting, you know, you sort of they they uh, I, I still see them as Butch and Sundance. Well, obviously, uh, the character was important enough in Robert Redford's career that he named a certain film festival yeah. festival of his after it. Yeah. So I mean, it obviously. Um, 
marked a, a very particular point in his career. And really, that the film was the one that was the uh, the jumping off point for him, essentially from just kind of an actor in little films, nobody really knew who he was, to, wow, he's a movie star, this guy, Robert Redford. Right. Uh, it, right, because, let's see, he was... Uh, he was coming off of this. He was coming off of what was it like? Barefoot, barefoot in the park. Yeah. Barefoot in the park. Yeah. Um, His property is condemned. You know, he did a lot of TV through the '60s. Yeah. And and then a, a few films that got some notice and stuff. But this film was the one that really uh, was the one that got him into movie star status. Yeah. Yeah. George Roy Hill had seen him and and thought he'd be perfect in the in the film. Nobody else believed him. Um, uh, it was it was one of those casting calls that I think George Roy Hill just really felt strongly about and and really was pushing. Initially, William Goldman, when he wrote the script, he pictured uh, Paul Newman in the film, and uh, oddly enough, Jack Lemmon paired with him, which I have a hard time picturing. I guess I guess you know Jack Lemmon had been in a, a, a western shortly before this, and so I guess maybe then it was easier to picture. But I just, I mean, now that you see these two iconic, you know, characters created by these two amazing movie stars, I cannot picture Jack Lemmon in this film. No, you know, in fact, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what was going on for him in the late '60s. He had done, um, uh, gosh, in so in 1969, he was in uh, the How the April Fools. Right before that was, <laughs> he was in The Odd Couple uh, in '68. Right, there, there is no. Um, he, he had done something uh, around there, I thought, where he was a sheriff. That, and I don't know what it was. The the that William Goldman had see had seen. I'm not. I'm looking at his list right now, and I don't know. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of Jack Lemmon's films in the in the sixties. In the sixties, so no, just, neither have I. No. That's that's interesting. I would not see that pairing either. Uh, yeah, very strange. Um. Uh, and then, and then Steve McQueen was also up for the role. And Steve McQueen said, I will be either of the characters. I, I want to be in this movie so badly, I think it would be great. And uh, George Roy Hill said, okay, well, then you be Sundance. And uh, Steve McQueen backed out because he really... <laughs> He really, really, really wanted to be, want to be Butch. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you can't, and, and you can't really studio. see him as anything else, right? No, yeah, exactly. And then, and then the studio uh, at the time, uh, this was 20th Century Fox, and it was headed up by uh, our favorite uh, uh, producer, Richard Zanuck. He was heading at the time, and, and he reluctantly agreed to let George Roy Hill have Robert Redford in the role. Which was uh, obviously a legendary decision. It was a smart move on his part. What was yeah. your sense watching this movie again? When was the last time you, you sat down and really watched it? Uh, it probably, uh, five to 10 years ago. Well, that's been a long time. Yeah. I hadn't seen it in a little while. I, I think I saw it, you know, a couple of years ago, maybe two, three years ago, but, um, you know, I hadn't really, I, I hadn't really watched it. I'm curious what, what you, what sort of stuck out for you watching it, maybe in the context now that we've, you know, we've been doing this show for two years almost and, and, uh, uh, kind of have a sense of of you know some other films of the period and other you know uh, other films of the genre and these guys what what is your sense for how this movie stands up in particular how it uh, you know what what is it uh, 
what is what is the novelty of this film? Why is it uh, why is it special? You know, the this film I think stands out as a western. Uh, the there's a, a great balance in it between the comedy and the seriousness and the action. Uh, I, I really enjoy that balance in this film. I think that the uh, but it's not comedy played like for jokes. It's not kind of a goofball slapsticky sort of comedy. I, I think Paul Newman and Robert Redford play the characters just very seriously through the whole film. It's just some of their lines happen to be just great funny lines, and some of the situations end up being pretty funny. I I think that is a strength that this film has that you didn't get in a lot of westerns, unless, like I said, it was going for that slapstick, which you know is obviously a totally different type of film. Um, I think the fact that um, you know the two heroes of the film in a cowboy movie don't stand and fight they actually run away and they flee yeah. the not just the area but the, the not just not just going past one continent i mean they go all the way down into south america they really uh flee and uh they uh so that's definitely something that stands out and then you know the music for me stands out in now, I don't know, this last time, the music stood out for me more in a way that didn't work as well for me as it has in the past. But that's its own little thing. That being said, I think the music did kind of, you know, define something of the era as to, like, using more modern music, more uh, putting a song in it, stuff like that. That helped maybe define some emotion in the film, as opposed to feeling like you had to fit within the context of the period or something like that. You, and you see filmmakers doing that uh, a lot nowadays. You know, um, Baz Luhrmann is all about completely anachronistic music within the context of his, of his films. And I think it's something that really works for him. For him. I think that the Burt Bacharach music in this, um, I, I think, works sometimes. Um, but that being said, I still think that it, it helps the film stand out as something different. So, you know, I, I think those for me are the things that really stood out as the uh, as the things that help this film stand out as something special. I, you know, me too. There were things that I noticed that I, I hadn't really given thought to the, you know, in prior reviews. Right. The, the first is the the period. And, and obviously this is based on a, you know, true roughly you know true-ish story right um you know and roughly true character so we had a date right but what but this was the first time i actually noticed the period you know and and how it was interesting uh in the way it played with the film in contact in, in contrast to other westerns right because this was um this wasn't just these two guys who were you know great uh, you know, bank robbers uh, that existed in the West. This was these were two guys that were coming to terms with a change of industry in a period yeah. uh, it, that was rapidly modernizing around them. And uh, and I had never grasped the weight of that sensibility before in this film. I had never really uh, I don't know. I I guess I'd never uh, just let that kind of sink in. There is this sequence in the you know right about in the halfway point is there trying to figure out you know what could we possibly do 
we have no other skills, right? I, yeah. I you have to be a kid to be a rancher. I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, I, we haven't we haven't done ranching since our cattle rustling days. You know, yeah, I mean, right. it just to, to really bring in this sense of, um, you know, this this is a conversation that we had had before, and we have had again. And again mm-hmm. and again, every time we have this this sort of generational change and technology change, and and here it was manifested in this bicycle, and and I thought the bicycle was very clever, and and I I love that um, that you know the way that that sort of pushes the momentum of this um, uh, of, of this. Uh, you know this issue of modernization forward i really like that the the second thing that stood out for me was this this relationship this threesome that they have here you know yeah. uh between um you know butch sundance and and etta um which i thought was quite a novelty because you don't end up having uh you, you know a you know man woman you know traditional stable relationship you have the the uh complexities of people of three people who really you know or her having a relationship with butch and sundance as a single unit you know right Um, and and you you get the feeling through you know goldman's fantastic script uh that this is a complex kind of 60s relationship that just happens to be set in the you know early 1900s Right, I I love that, and I'd never really noticed uh, noticed that before. You know, I'd re- never really thought through kind of what that means as a cultural statement in a Western movie, and and how right. that's yet another mashup that I think is really interesting. Uh, and the music, I'm right with you, man. I was surprised because you know I usually when I think of the music of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, I always think of raindrops keep falling on your head, and right. and uh, and that doesn't bug me. Even now, that song doesn't bug me because, again, it, it you know they're on the bike. It's all about you know this sort of cultural collision, yeah. uh, you know, of the time of this m- machine replacing their horse, and you know, uh, fear and exploration and all these great things. But man, most of the rest of the music doesn't just doesn't work. It just makes everything seem dated, and and in particular that huge montage right yeah. in the middle, the, the, the New trend, York montage, the New York to Bolivia montage, yeah. you know, is is massive, and I think it it it's like sixties circus music. Yes, it's it's something exactly about it. it. That it just had a total feel for the time, and I just I really, <laughs> I mean. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was rough to watch. Um, luckily, the film only has about thirteen minutes of music in, so there's not a lot to distract you. Yeah, right. I you have. I bet you have the CD, right? I'm sure you. I, I don't actually. <laughs> I don't. It, there's there's so little of it. I'm <laughs> not sure it's worth putting one out. It was a, the, it was um, a three inch CD. Yeah, right. One of those little tiny. Yeah. It's, it's like a business card. With <laughs> it's CD. right. It is. That's what it is. Um, the opening music, I think, is the best piece of music in the song mm-hmm. or in the film. The piece that it, it, there's this melancholy tone to the music at the opening when it's this. It, it's like we're watching a silent film about uh, you know Butch Cassidy and his Hole in the Wall gang. And you just have this melancholy music playing about this uh, as we're watching this film about this gang and and knowing that the tragedy that's going to come. It's I think that opening is absolutely beautiful. I think it's incredibly strong. And then that, but I I don't think any of the rest of the music in the film works. Uh, it's just that one piece. Yeah, I, yeah. You, so you don't even really like the raindrops. No, I do like raindrops. I think it's a phenomenal song. 
this was the first time that I've ever watched it where I, I felt the uh, disconnect of the of the the type of music with the period of the film. I've never had that before, and I mean, I love that sequence. I love the bicycle. I love everything about it. It's just for some reason, I just it it took me out of the film because I was focusing on the song, and you know, it just I I couldn't quite. I connect the two this time, and I, I don't know. It was, it was a strange moment for me. Don't ever hit your mother with a shovel. It leaves <laughs> a dull impression on her mind. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that bit. Yeah. I uh, okay. Um, I uh, I'm with you. The other, I oh, think. Oh no. One thing I wanted to touch on that you brought up that I I forgot to mention that I think was another great uh, moment for westerns and uh, and the film. Uh, that you brought up was this relationship. And I think there's a great strength to the character of Edda, uh, Catherine Ross's mm-hmm. character in this film, that uh, we didn't see in a lot of Westerns at the time. We always saw the woman staying at home or, you know, kind of uh, worrying about the men. Right, right. She was either staying at home or she was something to be rescued. Or, yeah, or she was somebody hooking people up. Right, right, <laughs> right. You know, uh, that's kind of what it boiled down to. And I think there's an amazing uh, growth it, that that William Goldman took writing this script and writing the character of At A Place um, this way that um, really brought so much more to the story. She was there um, fighting with them. She was giving them, uh, you know, key bits of information. She was involved in their lives. She wasn't just the woman worried at home. And I think that was an amazing strength that really stands out for me. And it really stood out more this time. Like you said, it's one of those things that's always been there. It's just this time I really noticed it. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. I think the discovery, the reveal of at a place when, you know, he's sitting in uh, in the dark in her uh, uh, in her bedroom. You know, Robert Redford sitting in the dark in her bedroom and surprises her, and she's shocked, and he's holding his gun, and he's like directing her, like conducting her with his gun on on how to strip. And there is this sense that that they're um, you know what they're they're introducing a sort of uh, you know sexual deviance you know and this sort of role play as they uh, uh, you know as they then you know introduce that they are they actually have a relationship and and uh, you know that's another one of those sort of the 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 sense I get of the the '60s '70s kind of contemporary um, um, play that we don't see in other. Westerns that just sort of ekes its way in here, and I think it makes it uh, a, a more sort of richly textured film as a result. Absolutely. Uh, but sorry, I interrupted you. You were going to bring up another point. You know, it was the nature of... I, I just wanted to go back to the nature of work a little bit in this film and how work is portrayed, because these guys, like you you made the, the point that they, which I think is really astute, uh, that, you know, these guys are legendary bank robbers and train robbers and and the real life uh you know gang uh led by Butch and Sundance had the I I think still the longest stretch of bank ro- successful bank robberies in American history right i mean they they've they robbed a lot of banks and got away with a lot of of you know a lot of dough and yet the way they were portrayed here is as just sort of workaday guys, you know, and and they yeah. it, the the way that that you know I love the exchanges with, uh, uh, you know, Paul Newman and the uh, what's his name the the uh, uh, 
the accountant who's always in the train uh, works for E.H. Harriman. Woodcock. Woodcock. Wood- oh, Woodcock. Yeah. You know, those exchanges with Woodcock are so civil. And, and I think that's the, <laughs> the, you know, this is the, the beauty of how the, the, how the uh, the robberies themselves are portrayed. They're always gentlemanly. You know, they they rob yeah. trains as gentlemen would. And, and right. uh, no, but you know that if it were my money, there's no yeah. one else I'd rather have steal it than you. <laughs> yes, it is so brilliant. Uh, and and so, uh, um, you know, I I I love how they talk about that, and I think that just adds to the sense of loss uh, that we get when these guys realize that their era is over. And what, you know, as it builds up to this really, uh, you know, this wonderful climax in Bolivia uh, as they are um, sort of gunned down in mystery. Yeah. And gunned down in history. I mean, that was the end of, you know, I think it really does a, uh, it provides a wonderful punctuation on the end of, a, of, a, of their time. Well, especially the you know the way that it ends with that massive army barrage of bullet fire. Right. It is definitely the difference between you know gunfights in the old west and gunfights during the time of warfare. Basically, right, you know, right. it's it was definitely interesting and yeah. uh, really portrayed very well. Well, in the the sense that these guys, you know, that that uh, that their weaknesses uh, end up really betraying their reputation. Mm-hmm. Right, that they're the things that they are that they are, uh, you know, terrified to admit that that Sundance can't swim. You know, right. he is an incredible gunslinger, but he can't he can't swim. And that Paul Newman, who has this, or or Butch, who has this reputation as a, you know, a, the, this incredible, um, you know, leader of this incredibly successful, you know, gang of thugs, has never shot a man. Uh, and it, yeah. it, you know, in that context, was. Um, it, it, made, it was made so much more powerful, and that's what you know ends up making the, the the great, um, uh, God the slaughter scene where they they, um, you know they yeah, take they out the gang of the, right the Bolivian Mexican gangsters or Boliv- right Boliv- right. Uh, and so what's much interesting, more powerful. exactly, and what's what is so interesting about that is, Butch has gone this whole time as a bank robber without ever killing anybody. And it's not until he decides he's going to go straight and he's yes. going to play it clean that he ends up having to kill people. And you can see in the scene immediately after how much it really affected him. Yeah, it's, It was, I thought, incredibly powerful moment in the film that I maybe I just hadn't really paid attention to that moment before, but it really stood out to me as, wow, this is such an unusual thing to see in a Western that you're protagonist of the film, albeit a bad guy, bank robber, is really kind of emotionally a little broken because he's now had to kill someone. Yeah, you know, and I think that gets to the to the point that these guys, you know, he's he is the bad guy because based on our social construct, he yeah. uh, you know, robbing banks is bad. But in the in, yeah. in the context of this film, he's just a working man, right? He's just a yeah. guy who's out there to make a buck like everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, um, I started watching this with my daughter, who was like, "Dad, why are why is it why is it about you know bank robbers?" And I said, "Well, you know, just because they're bank robbers doesn't mean that we don't want to tell a story about them. It's interesting to learn stories about different sorts of people." And I said, "Think of it this way: Remember Wreck It Ralph when the the Russian guy says to Ralph, he's like, Ralph." Just because you are a bad guy does not mean you are a bad, bad guy. guy. 
So see, there's you can like this guy. Yes, yeah. it's it's like what was it the the yeah what was the pet therapy movie with what's her name you know you can love your pets just don't love your pets. It's <laughs> right. always what I think of when I. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> Just don't love your yeah. That's uh, okay. We'll cut truth, that. Yeah. Truth about cats. And truth dogs. about cats and dogs. Right. So, uh, okay. So let's go back to William Goldman, can we? Yes, let's. So uh, there's a guy, William Goldman, who uh, I think, man, I I don't know. You you put him right up with uh, with I I think with Patty Chayefsky in terms of a of a the just skill and talent and restraint. He is a writer who really, I think, knows how to uh, put a script together and just tell a story in just an amazingly entertaining and skillful way. I really enjoy the stuff that he does. I mean, you know, Butch Cassidy and his kid, The Princess Bride, Misery, uh, you know, uh, Marathon Man, right. All the President's Men. It's, you know, there's just... So much stuff that he's done. Yeah, I feel like we haven't, you know, we, I don't know that we, I don't, gosh, I, my memory fades. When did we talk about Marathon Man and, and <laughs> all the President's Men? I don't, whatever it was, I don't feel like we talked, to, we, we showered enough praise on William Goldman. I mean, I, uh, and be, mostly because I think of this movie as like the William Goldman movie. Yeah. Uh, it, well, and, you know, maybe that's because. This was the the script that you know anyone who was interested in in screenplay writing bought William Goldman's book, and right. the the script for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was the last part of the book. And right, so I right, think right. It's yeah. like for a lot of people who who kind of first got interested in it, it was one of the first scripts that they probably read because it was in that book. It was, and there was another. I, I think you know, go uh, the scripts that were studied of William Goldman's, like Butch Cassidy, it's the Princess Bride, it's, uh, um, uh, gosh, what? Well, I think those were the those were really the two. All the President's Men, and to some extent, but really, you know, those two, um, and uh, partially because he is he was not only an exquisite screenwriter, uh, but he is an exquisite teacher. Of screenwriting, uh, yeah. and and the way he writes about the craft of of you know screenwriting is is um, you know not to be uh, you know overshadowed uh, by his actual work in film. Right, right. Uh, so, uh, but the, but this movie, why you know, as someone like yourself who actually teaches screenwriting, why is this script so exemplary of uh, of the craft? Uh, it, it, I mean, it boils down to the script. I mean, you read the script. It is, you know, entertaining all the way through. It is an incredibly entertaining read. It is uh, um, just amazing character writing. You you see how he writes these characters and how he just creates this world that you so easily uh, picture. I mean, literally, it just jumps off the page at you. And you get an amazing story that, I mean, looking at the script, it's not, or just as, as the film as a whole, it's not your typical Hollywood, uh, nowadays Hollywood script that has, you know, this is where character, your, your protagonist starts 
and they take this journey and this is their character arc and this is where they end. It's not a film like that. You have these two characters that are bank robbers and they're trying to sort things out. And, you know, I'm sure there's a little character arc in there as they're trying to kind of sort out what it is they want to do with their lives and all that sort of thing. But on the whole, I mean, this really is a biopic. It's one of those films that's like, okay, this is a chunk of their life. We're going to examine it and look at, at, uh, you know, how they progress over this portion of their life. Those are tricky films to write because they don't necessarily follow that typical, you know, Hollywood structure of character arcs and all that sort of thing. That being said, I think he found a way to tell this story that really becomes uh, just a fascinating study of characters in a time where they have this this change going on in their world and they are trying to figure out how to face it and as as people who aren't going to be changing with it really i think it's a, it's a, a solid script i mean it's it's a fascinating read and i think it's just one for the ages i i um, talk a lot about uh, you know the, the scripts that i like the most i think on this show are, are the scripts that show a great deal of restraint and patience and this is one of those scripts when you talk about great character writing that is definitely the the uh, the balance of of butch cassidy the screenplay it is a lot of of white space when it comes to dialogue and uh, uh much of that is uh you know to the credit of his great patience in letting these characters demonstrate uh, through motion on screen, uh, you know, where they're going. And I, I think that, um, uh, and, and the journey that they're taking is both the emotional journey that they're taking us on. And, and I think it's extremely powerful as a result. And at the same time, I'm sitting here watching this and, and, you know, my wife is, is kind of watching over my shoulder and, she just couldn't couldn't do it. Uh, she couldn't get into <laughs> it. And I found myself really sort of amazed by that because I, I you know, have such an easy time to kind of get into this film. And I, I, I wonder sort of what the expectations are for, you know, all of that silence and rock scrambling and, and you know, hoof, uh, you know, hoof beats. And, you know, there's just an amazing amount of sound that tells so much of the story, so much more than these guys actually, you know, speaking themselves. It's a challenging script in that sense because really you have this, it's a, I don't know what it is, a 30-minute, 40-minute chase yeah. right in the middle where, I mean, really, it's just Butch and Sundance on the run from the Who Super Posse. Who is that guy? Yeah, and, and it punctuated with those great moments that, again, they play seriously, but it really plays for laughs and it yeah. plays well. But it's it's... And it builds to such a great climax. You know, that whole chase builds to a, such a great final scene uh, before they escape. And uh, But it is a long slog through, and I, I shouldn't use the word slog, but I mean, really, it is in the middle of the film. All of a sudden, we've got this 30-minute chase. I think a lot of screenwriters wouldn't know how to hold an audience's interest. I think a lot of filmmakers wouldn't know how to direct it or a lot of actors wouldn't know how to play it. I think all the right pieces were in place for this to work and for this to be this amazing chase that just really goes on and keeps your interest the whole time. Well, I think that's I, I think that's the the secret and that also is is what you know is a requirement of the viewer that you are both watching and listening and paying attention to these scenes. It's not something that you can watch uh, and, you know, really get if you're, you know, trying to do something else, you know. Well, and I... You you need all your senses for this film. 
Absolutely. I was so engrossed in that chase scene that when they scramble up onto the rocks and they look over the top to see where the super posse is and they hear the rocks tumble behind them and Sundance spins around and shoots his gun so fast only to see that it's a Gila monster. I jumped out of my skin. I mean, I was so like there with them at that moment. I mean, it, you know, it just, it shows how when you're in the film with them and you're, and you're really in the moment, I mean, it's, it really is just completely engrossing. Truly, truly. Uh, you know, before we get too far, I want to, the, the books that uh, Goldman had written um, uh, that were, well, he, he wrote a bunch, but the first one uh, was 1983, Adventures in the Screen Trade, A Personal View of Hollywood and Screenwriting. That was the first one that I uh, had read, but immediately picked up uh, for screenplays, which is the one I think you're referring to, which has Marathon Man, Butch Cassidy, The Princess Bride, and Misery with an essay on each. Uh, uh well, no, my I think it's also Adventures in the Screen Trade. My copy has Butch Cassidy at the end of it. Does it really? Yeah, my my whole last part of the book, like the I'm flipping through it right now. It because uh, I it's, got let's see, it's got. Does it have the whole screenplay? In it? I don't have mine handy. And it's got. I remember it's got Sundays or it's got uh, parts of it. It's got all the presidents' men, but it doesn't have the whole thing. Oh, it's the whole script. Huh. Yeah, I may be remembering that wrong. Anyway, those are the two books. Well, we'll, we'll oh, here it is. My, my my front says expanded to include the full screen. <laughs> so I've got the expanded oh, version of it. Great, that's, of course. You why. have the laser disc version <laughs> of it. Uh, comes in wow. seven volumes. That's right. That's each right. eighteen pages long. <laughs> uh, okay. And then what was the other book that he wrote? Uh, well, which one? Well, he did, uh, let's see, he did, they, they did five screenplays after that. All the President's Men, Magic, Harper, Maverick, and the Great Waldo Pepper. Which Lie Did I Tell? More Adventures that's, in the Screen Trade? That's the one I was thinking. I, didn't, I never picked that one up. I haven't read that one either, but uh, that's one that I would like to pick up one of these days. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, anyhow, great stuff. We'll put, we can drop some links to those in oh. Amazon. Um, okay, so let's talk then about, uh, let's, let's move on. George Roy Hill. Yeah, let's do it. We are we've already expressed our love for George Roy Hill in our um, the Sting episode. Yeah, he's a uh, a great uh, director. I think he knows how to how to get his actors to do what they want and uh, or do what he wants, and in a way where it really is communicating the story that he is wanting to tell. Um, I forgot when I watched this again how beautiful the film is. Not just the cinematography, which, you know, we'll, we definitely need to talk about uh, Conrad Hall. Right. Um, not just the cinematography, but also just the way that George Roy Hill staged the shots and the way that he had the actors fill the screen and the way he had the movement within the frames and everything. I had forgotten how stunning it is from beginning to end. And I, I really give George Roy Hill major kudos for that. Even just like starting the film in that sepia-toned black and white as we are introduced to Butch Cassidy and then introduced to the Sundance Kid, just great, great way to introduce us to these two characters and, and the and the world that they're in. Yeah. Oh gosh. I you know I really agree with that. I, and I I think the um, you know that again the sense of patience that we have visually that that he was willing to let that sepia go as long as he did. Yeah. Uh, th- through that entire introduction of the Sundance Kid, which I thought was 
brilliant, brilliant, brilliant introduction. It was just focused, that long shot mm-hmm. of just uh, Redford's face while, you know, he's playing poker and you hear the voices of others around him milling about and you hear, yeah. you know, you hear Butch come in and you hear the talking about, you know, and, uh, you know, it doesn't, not until, uh, you know, the, the man accusing him of cheating stands up. Do we have a quick right. cut to his gun hand and, right. um, and then back to, back to Sundance. It is enormously restrained um, uh, filmmaking in that opening sequence. It's brilliant. And and very uh, smart filmmaking for him to stay on Redford so long. This was something that, uh, you know, they talked about how important, or George Roy Hill talked about how important it was for him to stay on Redford as long as he did at the beginning because... Again, remember, Redford at the time wasn't as big of a star. And if normally in Westerns, you know, at that time, that second character would be kind of more of a sidekick character. And your protagonist, once things got tough, the sidekick would, you know, go off and get coffee or something. And your protagonist uh, would go off and, and fight the bad guys. He really wanted the audience to pay attention to the Sundance Kid and know this guy is as important to the story as Butch Cassidy. And this film is going to be Paul's and Robert's, and they are both going to carry the weight of the film. I think that was a very smart move on his part and, you know, potentially risky if it didn't work out. But I think, you know, everybody ended up finding, obviously, that it was the right the right call. Well, it certainly was. And, you know, it does something else for us. I mean, we already really knew who Paul Newman was and people knew, you know, him coming in. But as you say, uh, you know, and we've talked about this before, about the fact that some of these Westerns, end up being movies about uh, kind of swarthy, sweaty, dirty white guys with beards, right? Yeah, right. And and funny mustaches. And and that was one thing that I noticed, you know, sticking on Redford as long as we do, you burn this guy's face into your into your head as long as he's on screen. And, and Absolutely. It, it's really hard to miss him in a crowd after you spend so long staring at him in this introductory scene. It was really um, clever. Yeah. So. Yeah. But George Roy Hill, um, when he was making this film, he he actually, I guess he had uh, back issues. He had a bad back, and he heard it while he was scaling a, a uh, mountain to find a shot with uh, with Newman. And they it took, I think it sounded like it took him the rest of the day to get him down off the mountain. And then for the rest of the film, he they told the... Uh, production manager, don't report this to the studio. They didn't want him to get replaced. Mm. And so they built him this stretcher, basically, that they would carry him around (laughs) while they were making the film. And they would just kind of prop him up so he could give his direction and everything. And then they would set him down (laughs) while they went and shot the shot. (laughs) Then they'd pick him up to do the stuff. It sounds just like a horrible way to have to go through making a film. But to his credit, he still pulled off just a stunning film. That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, now, which uh, do what ver- do you have the uh, uh, the version of the, which version of this film do you have? Um, I don't know of any but the one. Well, because you know, wasn't this this was one that was um, wasn't this one that was done again for like seventy uh, fifth anniversary of twentieth century Fox? Wasn't it like cleaned up again? Am I missing something? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I have I have it on Blu-ray. Um, I haven't noticed anything different with it. Um, if it is just cleaner, 
Yeah. Um, that may be the case, but it's I, I don't think it's anything that is ever included. Yeah, it, no, it never never like included that. additional footage. That I that I I know, but uh, I was just curious. I, you know, because I uh, I couldn't get this one in time, so I ended up picking it up on iTunes, and and it is you know they put the seventy fifth you know anniversary you know logo stuff all over it and um and i i didn't know if it was any different if they had made a big deal about re-releasing that uh, hmm. i you know the hd version of it is quite gorgeous um but uh, i didn't know if I, I was missing something i don't think so i mean it it looks it looks stunning on blu-ray i will i yeah. will say that one of these days andy <laughs> i i doubt it uh. I, I doubt you're gonna cross that line <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, you wanted to talk about uh, the fantastic Conrad Hall. A cinematographer, I think, who really knows how to create an image that just sells a film, sells a, a, a moment. He really uh, captures just beautiful beautiful images. Uh, we talked about him also in Marathon Man. Oddly enough, he, uh, he did that one too. And uh, I, I'm sure we've talked about him just in the context of how great he is. But um, he had, uh, I think he had a bad uh, rap around this time. Um, some of the films that he had done just before this, while amazing films like Cool Hand Luke, In Cold Blood, Rogue's Gallery, Hell in the, Pac Hell in the Pacific, um, he had uh, kind of developed a reputation for being a very slow cinematographer and uh, somebody who just took way too long lighting scenes and all that. And um, again, the studio did not want him. They wanted... Uh, George Roy Hill to find somebody else, but Hill had seen, I can't remember what it was, I don't know if it's Hell in the Pacific or something, one of those films, and knew that this was the guy that he wanted to bring on board for this, and he pushed and pushed, and I again, I just through the, the will of George Roy Hill, he did manage to get Conrad Hall on for this job, and rightly so, I mean, Conrad Hall went on to just create just a, a stunning looking film. I don't know. I, I didn't hear anything about the shoot taking overly long because uh, Conrad Hall was, you know, taking so long lighting his shots. I didn't hear anything about that, but he did go on to win an Oscar for it for Pete's sake. So obviously he was doing something right with it. It is, uh, it, it is gorgeous. Uh, and I think you're exactly right on a guy who knows how to, uh, you know, really capture a or capture a frame. Uh, if you do just a, a search, just a Google search for you know Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid images on Google Images, uh, I, I think that comes it really comes home because so many of the uh, it's not like one of those movies where you see um, kind of the same screen grab all the time you know when you look at people who go in and grab screen grabs for whatever purpose and the, right. the, the, the pressers and such every single image of these guys is different every single clip of these guys is, is capturing a different look usually yeah. of them staring off into the distance together but it's just a completely different and uh, i think really uh, gorgeous composition yeah, it really is. I, I, he just knows how to make beautiful images. Yeah, he really does. Um, the uh, I'm actually looking for one because I wanted to ask you about it. So the scene, the slaughter scene we talked about, right? The 
the oh, yeah. gang slaughter, right? I don't mm-hmm. have it in front of me. I'm look. I'm scrubbing. I'm scrubbing, right. which is an industry term for the scrub. Where right, where it all of a sudden goes slow mo as as we hear kind of the echo of these guys' screams as uh, Butch and Sundowns uh, gun them down in Bolivia. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm wrong. I, I had it in my head. There's this wonderful long cut right after that where both of these guys are staring at the carnage, right? Mm. You know what I'm talking about? They're both looking down, and Robert Redford is, is um, you know, right close to us, and, and Paul Newman's behind him about 10 feet, probably about 5 feet. And uh, it's a it's a one of those kind of iconic things where, you know, it's not just them looking at being chased. It's them looking at at what they are actually capable of when, you know, when they've gone good. This is what they're required to do. And as you pointed out earlier, and I was wondering if the image in my head uh, was a clear use of a split diopter. And I just found it. I clearly is not. um, Mm, But but, uh, I wanted to ask you about that because. I didn't know if you noticed it, but now I'm wrong. So this whole thing is for nothing. <laughs> so it was for naught. But <sighs> um, no, the film, um, let's see, George Roy Hill was nominated for Best Director. It was nominated for Best Picture. Uh, Bill Edmondson, David Dockendorf were nominated for Best Sound. William Goldman uh, won an Oscar for Best uh, Screenplay based on material not previously published or produced. Um, Burt Bacharach and Hal David won Best Song for Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, and Burt Bacharach won for Best Score. Again, that I think now feels more like just a, something from the time. And Conrad Hall won for Best Cinematography. Um, the film did lose out at the Oscars uh, for Best Picture to Midnight Cowboy, um, and I believe that is what yeah John uh, Schlesinger won for Midnight Cowboy, again beating out George Roy Hill. So um, well, and then in the uh, the the British Academy of Film Awards, uh, won best film, best direction, best screenplay, best cinematography, and Redford for best actor, which is interesting, uh, and best he's... actress for Catherine Ross, because because Redford is such a restrained character, and yeah. Butch Butch is much more of kind of the outgoing, gregarious character. So it's interesting that that's the direction that they took with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyhow, uh, so it, it did very well. How to do in the box office? It was a lousy uh, performance of the box office. I think this is why you know nobody really talks about this movie very much. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it it came out in October 1969, budget of 6.5 million. Domestically, it went on to make 102 uh, million. So it, it uh, for a 110-minute film, it made a profit per minute of $870,990, uh, and that's 1969 dollars. One of these days, I'm going to have to you know, adjust all of this for inflation. Yeah, because so where, where does that put it? It puts it. It actually bumps Inside Man, which we talked about just a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, it's at number 21 on our list between Alien 3 and Inside Man. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, comp- oh Interesting. Alien 3. Yes, yeah. Oh, uh, that's fantastic. Do we? I, I'm sure you have a, a tome of notes uh, ready to keep talking about, right? Your one more you know, thing I, list has got to be vast. I always do. Um, just a few, few quick notes. One thing I really liked that uh, Hill really focused on is he really did everything he could when, when filming all the scenes with the super posse to keep them as inhuman as possible. And I really enjoyed that. I love how you never really see faces of this super posse. They're always from long shots or they're just, they're 
silhouetted from yeah, you know the sunlight behind them or something. I, I really enjoy the super posse. You only stuff. barely get to see the white hat at the yeah, very late right. in the sequence. Right, exactly. Yeah. I think that is great. Um, the uh, just a, a nice little bit of uh, trivia it filmed uh, in mostly uh, Utah in I think it was Zion where they filmed a lot of the Western stuff. They went to Colorado to film the Durango Silverton narrow gauge for the train and this, the towns and stuff were out in LA and then they shot all the Bolivia stuff down in Mexico, um, down, uh, uh, I can't remember where, but, um, and then the last thing that I think is really fascinating is that, um, it, it just, this is something that kind of blew my mind when I heard it because I have such a disconnect between Westerns and modern times. Butch Cassidy's sister visited the set. Butch Cassidy's real sister. His real sister visited the set of the film. I have such a hard time putting like a Western context people riding on horses and gunfights and all that with filmmaking. Obviously, it kind of they, there was that little bit of crossover there. In fact, the opening of the film with that silent film of you know Butch Cassidy and the Hole in the Wall Gang, that was based on a, a real uh, silent film made about the Hole in the Wall Gang that theoretically, well, William Goldman kind of said, you know, wouldn't it have been interesting if while they're down in Bolivia, they ended up seeing this film about, made about themselves? <laughs> Uh, which is why he wrote that into the script. But, yeah, his sister was still alive and visited the set and just kind of you know, came to see what they were shooting and everything. Now, the story that she tells, and uh, there's this big story now that's been going around that these two guys didn't die in Bolivia. You know, they there's unfortunately, there's no evidence, there's no proof of this. But, you know, it's kind of general belief that they did die down there. But she said, no, no, he came back and he retired in, I can't remember where, Idaho or something, where he lived until he died. And likewise, I got a call at work a couple years ago from a guy who said, I've got a really interesting story to tell you. I'm looking for someone to give me some funds so I can make a, a, a film about this, a documentary. But I am the great-grandson of the Sundance Kid. And he was working on a book. He had sent me uh, all sorts of notes that he had uh, been taking. They had this, um, they had exhumed a body in Utah that they believed to be the Sundance Kid. William Henry Long. Yeah, they had a, they had a funeral procession for him. They buried him in a, in a cemetery, all this sort of stuff. And, you know, I talked to this guy and, you know, we weren't real, we're not, we're not in the place to basically fund other people's projects. So we didn't. Uh, do anything with it. But I chatted with this guy because I was so fascinated about the fact that he said, I'm the great grandson of the Sundance kid. It's That's crazy. Watching this movie and then hearing stories like this, it's, it really just kind of really puts a shift on things when, you, when you, you think there's this reality. And, you know, like William Goldman says, most of this story is true. I mean, obviously nobody really knows. So it's all right. you know, fictionalized to a, a big degree. But Hearing these stories, it's like, gosh, I wonder if they died in Bolivia or if they came back here. And who knows? Maybe they were alive to even see the film. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> Very interesting little bits of trivia. Well, uh, and, and don't forget the, um, the Simpsons Halloween special, Treehouse of Horror 13, in which the Sundance Kid 
along with Billy the Kid, Frank James, Jesse James, and Kaiser Wilhelm <laughs> are in the Hole in the Ground gang. Classic, <laughs> classic episode. <laughs> oh, that is just awesome. That is let's, awesome. Uh, let's rank it. Let's. Uh, let's if you head over it. to uh, flickchart.com, com, com, you can uh, <laughs> slash the next reel. You can see our uh, our, our race to 100. Yeah. It should be episode, what is this, 92 that we have. We're over 100, right, In now, aren't we? No, we're not. We're not. We're getting there. Uh, this is going to be 98. This is going to be 98. No, no sorry. This, this, we're at 98. This will be 99. That's when you add in all yeah. of the... Uh, uh, all the film boards. Right, the film boards. So right. Wolverine will be 100 if you look at, you know, in, in toto. In uh, in flick chart world right? in flick chart yeah we're gonna hit 100 on well that's good that'll be a nice little celebration so flickchart.com slash the next reel to find the golden list top 100 films yes indeed let's do it butch cassidy and the sundance kid or moon butch cassidy yeah do you know that the original title of this was the sundance, sundance kid, kid butch and cassidy? butch cassidy yeah <laughs> How dumb is that? I can't even say that. I know. It sounds so wrong. <laughs> All right. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or The Social Network? That one burns a little bit. It does. It does. Because if I, it's, it's really, it doesn't, it doesn't go well from here. It doesn't. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a fight all the way. I know. Because I'm already tempted to say The Social Network. I... Oh, there's definitely a more interesting psychology going on in the social network. I God, I feel like I have to go with Butch Cassidy, though. Why? Just because of legacy? And uh, yeah, I just... Allegiance? Not even that. I just, watching it this time, I felt there was so much more going on in this film that I had just not really paid attention to or noticed before. And I really uh, found myself drawn to the story of these two guys struggling in... uh, as yeah, yeah, yeah. It's changed. Yeah, yeah, me too. I go, I go with you. <laughs> okay. Whatever you say. Whatever you say. You are right. <laughs> Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or The Thing. Butch Cassidy. That's a tough one, though. It's not that tough. It is. It is for me. It's not that tough. That, what it's, is going on? It's the stomach. <laughs> it's the arms. Oh. oh. Okay, Butch Cassidy. What, or... would, what would Dick Dysart say? That's right. That's right. He would totally say the thing. He would say Butch Cassidy. (laughs) Except for his scenes, of course. Right. Uh, uh, Butch Cassidy or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Butch Cassidy. I'm going to have to agree. I I can tell this one tears you up. I know this tears you up. These are just all great films. That's why this is so hard. Uh, Butch Cassidy or Alien. Alien. I, I was going to say alien. That's the point. Okay. <laughs> that is it. Go okay, ahead. Butch, fight, fight me on it. <laughs> I, no. Uh, yeah. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh. I, I'm going to have to go Raiders on this one. It is just indelibly imprinted yeah, on yeah, my Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will too. I will childhood. too. Yeah. Uh, Butch Cassidy or the Hurt Locker. I think you're going to say The Hurt Locker. I'm going to say Butch Cassidy, actually. Really? I am. Oh, good. No fight. And no fight on that one. 
Oh, there we are. Number five. Number five is alive. <laughs> hey, there we go. Okay, so what's uh, what uh, give, what's the rundown? Four, three, two, one. Right now. Uh, Butch Cassidy, number five. Raiders of the Lost Ark, number four. Alien, number three. Jaws, number two. And number one, Holding Strong Network. Oh, I feel so good about that. That is a That's great, a great top five. list. I mean, yeah. It really is a great top five. Yeah. No, really can't go wrong. Very strong about that. And we, you know, we haven't talked about you, uh, whoever referred you to this idea for another series or a list that we need to start of films we that are required viewing for your children. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My buddy Nels. That's such a great idea for a series, although I feel like we, we're going to need to cap it. It'll be Somewhere. a hard one. Well, it's one of those one of those lists that I feel like we can come up with a series, but there's going to be constant films that we talk about that could fit on that list. Yeah, totally. I think this could fit on the list, although I will say I did start watching this with my uh, six, almost seven-year-old daughter, and I realized, you know, as one, she was just like, why are we watching a film about bank robbers? And two, <laughs> I got to the point where... Uh, uh, Sundance was in Etta's house and he was making her strip and all that. And I was like, oh, this is just, I'm going to just maybe a little, little eyes and yeah. maybe when she's 10, we'll try again. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's where I, that's where I am. I, my daughter is uh, away at uh, hunger games camp. Uh, this week, so that sounds like the worst camp a parent could send their children. So I, to. I hope to see her again on Friday. You hope and he is the she, yeah, may the odds be in her favor, and and uh, so she's off learning to to track and hunt and and uh, survive in the woods. Wow, yeah, it's a good camp, but I, I would have watched it with her. I think she's you know she's eleven, and I I feel like it was it would be you know I I think I could sit down and and watch it. Now, would she be interested past the, you know, the first five minutes of the of the chase? Uh, I don't know because that's that's a long chase if you're not yeah. accustomed to films like this. But um, uh, but she's she'd be good for it. Yeah. Anyway, seems like a good age. Where we go from here? Do you even know? Do you care? Yes, I do. Next week we're talking about um, an, a totally different uh, kind of take on a couple on the run. I, I kind of we're going to be uh, talking about Charles Lawton's one. Uh, one opportunity to direct a film, The Night of the Hunter. You know what I realized after we put this series together? I actually haven't seen this film. I was wondering if you had, and I'm very excited to talk to you about it, but I'm also I'm also a little nervous because it's a film that is different, and uh, <laughs> I think some people really appreciate the, the differences the, about the film. The differentosity? Uh, the differentosity. Uh-huh. I... Love it. And it's a film, again, that I would love to watch with my daughter, but again, probably not until she's about 10 or 11. So um, watch it with your daughter. This is, See what this she is thinks. Uh, Robert, Robert Mitchum, right? 1955? Robert Mitchum. Yep. Shelley Winters and the uh, amazing Lillian Gish. Well, it's certainly right in there with what we, uh, you know, with our, our, you know, kind of what we love over here is this kind of film noir-ish, right? It kind of is film noirish, but it's also not. <laughs> it's just also not. Uh, but the couple, on, <laughs> the couple on the run in this film is a couple of children, so it'll be. Oh, uh, excellent! Well, that's it's <laughs> good. Yeah, that's it's, dark. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a fairy tale in a way. It's an interesting film, and I love it. Well, I can't wait to see it. I'm very excited I, about it now. 
Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to talking to you uh, a, a, uh, with your virgin eyes and see what you have to say. Excellent. Mm-hmm. All right. Good talk. Um, now, I, uh, yeah, I got to go check the stack rankings for uh, Hunger Games camp. <laughs> Make sure she makes it to another you know, day. You know, you know she's uh, good if they've given her the nickname, the girl on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's right oh man Uh. i've been podcasting since 2006 in that time i've tried countless hosting platforms but in august 2022 we switched to transistor to power all of our shows here at true story fm and it's been a game changer I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.